All right. Well, to catch up, because it has been four weeks, uh, we are approaching the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark, who was a very close associate of Peter, is in this Gospel essentially writing down Peter's memories. Mark is serving as Peter's scribe, so to speak. As old man Peter is likely in jail in Rome, and he's dictating his memories. And Mark is writing this down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Mark's original audience was heavily persecuted. They were going through Nero's persecution at this time. And so many of them were buckling under the strain. And they were having to ask themselves, is Jesus worth it? Jesus is worth it, no doubt about it, when times are easy. But when the state turns on its pressure and threatens your livelihood and your freedom and your life itself and your family turns up the pressure and decides you have to choose between this God you serve and us, all of a sudden, it becomes a little harder to answer that question, is Jesus worth it? And key to answering the question is the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And so this book then labors to get us to answer the question, who do we say that Jesus is? The first eight chapters of the book are centered on the question, who is this man, Jesus? Who is he? Is he the Messiah? The second eight chapters, or the last eight chapters, I should say, the latter half of the book, then, after having answered that question in the pivotal chapter, the latter eight chapters then say, what kind of Messiah, then, is this Jesus? Because everybody was expecting the Messiah or the Christ or the Savior to be a geopolitical military liberator. He would literally come, kick out all the bad people, and introduce this land of this era of beautiful bliss. It would be a paradise. But Jesus time and time again challenges their notions of what it means for the Messiah to be the Messiah. So Jesus is the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah is he? And so, whatever you think of Jesus, whatever you think of Jesus and his mission, and there's a lot of people out there who look at Jesus and his mission as being to come and, and, and teach social justice, to, to provide a, a voice to the downtrodden. Whatever you think of it, Fundamentally, we learn in chapter 10, 45, verse 45, that his mission was to give his life as a ransom for others. He came because we needed to be set free. His blood had to be spilled so that ours wouldn't have to be. We were in bondage and needed to be freed. Jesus came as a ransom. And when Jesus came, his coming, his life, his ministry, his work, it introduced a change. 
And the change really shook people up. The coming of Jesus introduced a change in how we construe acceptability with God. Jesus' coming introduced a change in how we define the parameters of God's kingdom and who's in it and who's not. The coming of Jesus introduced a change in how we relate to God. And so since he came and introduced a change, one may wonder, well, was this an expected change? Did they recoil so negatively because he introduced something they were not supposed to have known before? No, they had been given a heads up that the day was coming when everything would change. Indeed, if you look about 500 years prior, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 3, verse 16 of his book writes of a day when the very symbol of God's presence with his people, the Ark of the Covenant, would no longer even come to mind. And in chapter 31, Jeremiah writes of a time when God would create a new covenant with his people, not like the former one. It would be one in which the law of God was not written on stone, but on the very hearts of his people. So if they weren't expecting it, it wasn't because God hadn't given them notice. They had received notice. No, they weren't ready. They weren't anticipating it because just as in Aristotle's famous maxim about a fish not knowing it's wet because it's surrounded by water, the Jews of Jesus' day were rife. They were filled. They were consumed with nationalistic and ethnic pride. And they had turned their faith into a nothing more than a state religion. And so when Jesus spoke of change, when Jesus spoke of being acceptable to God apart from the cultic practices of the temple, they didn't hear a new and better way. They heard treason. They heard a denunciation of everything that they held dear. But still the change was coming. And as Hebrews 8.13 tells us, when the new covenant comes, the old one is declared and rendered obsolete. And therefore, Jesus spoke strongly about the termination of the temple and all of its work. The temple which was shorthand for the work of the temple, the sacrificial system, the mediatorial system of the temple. It was coming to an end because the new day was dawning. And so Jesus, in chapter 13, which was immediately preceding what we talked about, he describes how that end would come cataclysmically. But then, because the Lamb of God must be slain, the time of his departure was approaching. So Jesus is anointed. And now, he's about to institute the Lord's Supper. What I want you to know from this passage is just how much God is for you. When Jesus introduced the changes that terminated the end of the Old Testament era and brought about the New Covenant, New Testament era, Jesus didn't want anything to get lost in the mix that God cares about his people. This is the one thing that doesn't change. God is committed to his people. 
But yet stuff happens. I mean, stuff happened for, for, for the ancient Jews. Stuff happens in the ancient church. Stuff happens in your life that makes you wonder, is God really for me? Have you ever gone a protracted period of time where you, you just don't feel any connection with God? And you start wondering, has God forgotten about me? What's wrong? I, I wish I could have just a sign that God loves me. Has that ever happened to you? Jesus wants you to know that he is for you. And so what happens in this passage right here is before Jesus leaves, he institutes the Eucharist, the meal of thanksgiving, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. He institutes it as a sign and a seal of his being for you. If there's anything else you remember, if there's nothing else you take away, remember that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are walking in the footsteps of Jesus and partaking of the meal that he has instituted to be a very sign. The sign you've been asking for. The sign that he is for you. And he is not partaking of the fruit of the vine again until he is able to partake it with you in the consummation that we learn about in Revelation 19. Because the day is coming when Jesus returns, the dead will rise, everything will be made right, and all of God's people from all time will gather and we will celebrate the most joyous Lord's Supper celebration we've ever had. But for the time being, as we go through the muck of life, understand this, that the Lord's Supper is a sign that he is for you. So in this passage, we primarily are going to see three things. First, Jesus will not let anything detract from his communion with you. Jesus extends mercy to everyone. And Jesus gives himself to you. So look at with me at verses 12 through 17. Jesus 12 to 17. You know, as I was reading these verses, I was reminded of the fact that we, we try to have these times with Jesus. You know, I want to have a quiet time to meet with Jesus. You ever had that? Do you ever talk of your devotion time that way? I'm going to go have my time with Jesus. And have you ever done that and you wonder, was Jesus really with me? Or was I just kind of meeting by myself, talking to the air? Have you ever had that? Well, maybe I'm the most unholy one here, but that's happened. Did you know that Jesus has made a weekly appointment to meet with you? He meets with you when we gather to worship in his name. That's a weekly appointment. Did you know that whether you feel, you know, warm tinglies or not, Jesus has met with you when you worship here? Did you know that when you gather with your brothers and sisters and you are encouraging each other in the faith, that Jesus has promised to be even there? We wonder, is Jesus going to let something interrupt our communion? 
the disciples here want to know, hey, hey, Jesus, you know, how are we going to go and, uh, and, and find a place to have communion? And before they can even finish answering the question, asking the question, Jesus reveals that he's already solved the problem. Some people here think that what's happening is Jesus is predicting. He's using his divine foreknowledge and he's looking and he says this is what's going to happen and it's a you know and so God he's he's basically functioning like a prophet here. And that's possible because Jesus does know the future. But I think that it actually is a this is a little glimpse into how awesome of a strategical maneuverer Jesus was. We've already learned that the Pharisees and the religious leaders needed an inside man. They could not pin Jesus down. He just had a way of evading detection, and he would just show up in these highly public places. They could not track his movements. They could not locate where he slept at night. He was a very good operator. And so when Jesus says, go into Jerusalem and you'll find a man with a water, with a water, a jar of water, follow that guy. Well, that was a pretty interesting sign because men didn't carry water jars. That was quintessential woman's work. A man would not normally be carrying a water jar. But Jesus says, find the guy who's carrying water. Out of these, all these throngs of people, you're going to find a guy carrying a jar of water. Follow that guy. Now that kind of comes across like it's a prearranged signal. Kind of like the man with one red shoe or the woman in the red dress or whatever. Follow that guy and go to the, go to the see where he goes. Go up to that door, knock on the door. And he's very ambiguous. You know how he doesn't name names? He doesn't say, he's going to take you to, to, to John's house. He's going to take you to, to Levi's house. He doesn't say that. He's being very clandestine. Why do you think that is? Because there's a traitor in his midst. And he's not going to let the traitor find out prematurely where they're going so that he can have this last meal with them. As we learn in John, he desired very zealously to have this meal with them. And so he's made, I believe, a careful prearrangement. He's lined things up. He's made the appointment. He's made the provision. He's got the date on the calendar. And he's not going to let anything detract from their communion. Not even the work that he's about to do in less than 24 hours. Guys, the same is true for us. He's made an appointment to meet with us. Will you avail yourself of that? How often do we feel dry and we feel so disconnected? But we're the ones missing the appointment. It's not Jesus. It's us. So Jesus makes the arrangements. He's going to make sure that communion happens and I really believe that that's his grace on display. Think of all the circumstances in your life, all the things that could impede, and yet he's promised to meet with you. Take him up on it. Meet with him. But second then, once he gets to the place, we see him extending mercy most powerfully. You may say, where? What are you talking about extending mercy? Well, verse 18, I admit, I mean, when you look at verse 18... 
it's like Jesus is the biggest party pooper ever. They're having a great time. Everyone's eating. It's they're having a party. And then Jesus totally pops the balloon. One of you's going to betray me. And the mood changes. You can't say something like that without everything changing. And everyone's wondering, oh, oh, is it me? What's all the commentators are agreed that what he says here, he says primarily to and for Judas. It's interesting what he does, doesn't it? Jesus knew his mission was to die. I mean, he explicitly said so. So on the one hand, why did he bother saying anything at all? Just let it happen. On the other hand... He could have walked into the room and pointed at Judas, you dirty rat. You know, could he have done that? Yeah. Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 13, after telling a winsome story, he points right at David, you the man. Jesus doesn't do that to Judas. Judas is about to betray him to death. And Jesus wants him to know, I know what you're up to. I know. You think you're smart. You think you're clever. You think you got the drop on me. But I know. And he wants Judas to have the sting of guilt, the sting of shame. So that Judas would perhaps, under the weight of that conviction, Change course. Because it wasn't too late. Now this passage right here is a powerful picture of the Christian doctrine of concurrence. You see, Jesus says very clearly, the Son of Man goes as it is written. Okay, there is a decree that God has set in stone. The Son of Man will go. But woe to the man by whom? And so we see God's sovereignty on display right here. The Son of Man goes. And you see Judas' free will. But woe to the man by whom he goes. There is a huge debate in the church. This lasted since the beginning of the church about the relationship of God's sovereignty and free will. Man's free will does not usurp or undermine God's sovereignty. Okay, there's no plan of God's that goes undone because it's somehow thwarted by people. But at the same time, God's sovereignty doesn't nullify human free will. They work together. God somehow uses the free choices of people to accomplish his purposes. So in a very real sense, God did not make Judas betray Jesus. Judas does what Judas wants to do. But yet, Judas doing what Judas wants to do brings about God's purposes. That's the doctrine of concurrence. Now, this right here should inform how we operate. When we understand God's sovereignty, it's like we're getting a peek behind the curtain. That God has decreed that his word would not return to him void. So we can evangelize and share the gospel with confidence. 
But yet at the same time, we understand that people have to choose. And Jesus, even though he understands that the person who's going to betray him, it would have been better for this guy if he hadn't even been born, he's not going to consign Judas to just the heap. He gives him one last chance by trying to prick his conscience. And of course, Judas, he remains resolute in his commitment. But yet, Jesus extends the mercy of conviction beyond Judas. You see, by the end of the night, every single person in that room would have betrayed Jesus. Did you know that? Jesus is betrayed by Judas most violently, most brazenly. I mean, Judas comes up and kisses him on the cheek. That, that's horrible. But Peter denies and disavows him three times. And every man in that room runs away in his moment of need. And if you think that's not betrayal, then you've never been abandoned by your friends in your moment of need. Jesus drops the word the way he does, so that way Judas is pricked. But at the same time, it's vague enough where everybody in that room should have been a little more circumspect. And you know what? The point of that is to drive home to all of us. We aren't fellowshipping with Jesus because we are so awesome and worthy. Like Judas, like Peter, like these others, we're frail. And we're prone to thinking about ourselves first. And that's exactly what they do here. When Jesus points out that someone's going to betray him, look at what they do. Look at what they don't do. They don't immediately say, oh, guys, we've, we've got to guard Jesus. Uh, we ain't letting no one get close to Jesus. We're going to set up a perimeter. We're going to guard Jesus. They don't say that. Nor do they start an inquisition. They don't start going around chokeholding each other. Is it you? What are they doing? Is it me? Oh, I'm off the hook. They're primarily concerned with themselves and making sure that they're in the clear. Jesus has just talked about being betrayed. And in this moment where you would think Jesus would be getting a little bit of sympathy from his people, his people are just sitting there, whew, glad it's not me. It's this self-centered, this, this, this self-absorption that plagues us. It dies so hard, doesn't it? You and me, we struggle with it. It's what affects us in our marriages. It's what makes it so we can't really dive in and commit in the church. It's what plagues us in the, with our children and towards our parents and, 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 and with our work. I just want to make sure I'm taken care of. And you know, Jesus, he doesn't say, oh, you people make me sick. I can't believe it. You people, all you're worried about is your own name. I'm done with you. I'm out of here and then bust through the roof on turbo jets. He doesn't do that. No. He institutes a meal. You see, this is what Jesus does. 
He extends mercy to the merciless. He gives himself to the people who don't deserve it. And that's you and me. That's grace, brothers and sisters. And then, lastly, he doesn't just give himself for us. He gives himself to us. In verses 22 through 25, we see the actual institution of the meal itself. He breaks bread, they eat. He gives a cup, they drink. And he says, this bread is my body. And this cup is the blood of the covenant. All right? Much has been written. If you read the commentaries, much has been written about how this you know, would have been the, 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 which cup of the meal this would have been, because there's a very clear rabbinical tradition about how the, the, the Passover meal went. Um, and the honest answer is we think that's maybe what Jesus would have done, but we're not sure. Any honest person has to say we're not quite sure. You want to know why? Because the Mishnah that prescribes the Passover Seder protocol comes from the year 200 which is 130 years after Jesus. And in between Jesus and that, there's this little thing called the destruction of Jerusalem that forever changed Judaism. So we're really not sure. It is interesting that Jesus, there's no mention of of the Lamb here. Today we sang of Jesus being the Lamb of God. Jesus is throughout the Bible referred to as the Lamb of God. So you would think on the one hand that it, if this was a Passover meal, that Jesus would have stood up and the lamb, which is central to the Passover meal, that Jesus would have stood there, this lamb is my body, since the Bible so frequently identifies him as the lamb of God, but he doesn't. We don't know what order, what cup, what was had, what wasn't. We don't know about herbs and spices. We don't know any of that. And there's a reason why the Gospels don't record that. You know what that is? Jesus wasn't concerned to perpetuate the covenant meal of a covenant that's about to be obsolete. Jesus is concerned to institute a new meal for a new people of a new covenant. And so he uses bread because bread was the dietary, the most essential dietary component of the people of that day. You have no bread, you die. Jesus institutes a new meal. And he identifies the bread and the wine as his body and his blood. This is my body. This is my blood. Now here's where we have to separate the the, the millennia of superstition. Jesus is not saying that when the priest says the words, hoc est corpus meum, that the bread becomes human flesh and that the wine becomes blood. Okay? That's not what that means. But there is a very real sense in which Jesus is saying that this element is so identified with myself that when you receive these elements, you receive me. So brothers and sisters, in a very real sense, 
Jesus gives himself to us. Our lives, our spiritual walk is dependent upon our reception of Christ. And it is sustained by Christ. And nothing more depicts this than our reception of these elements into our body. With the Lord's Supper, Jesus' blood is the blood that ratifies the new covenant. Every covenant of the Old Testament is ratified in blood. Because the blood is the life of something. When the blood goes, you're gone too. And so when the law was given, penalties must be paid in blood because the law, violations of the law deserve death. And so when covenants were ratified, they were binding. And the guilty parties who broke these covenants would have to be killed. And so when you made a covenant, both parties would kill something to symbolize, if I break the covenant, may what just happened to this animal happen to me. But yet in God's first covenant with Abraham, Abram, and we see in Genesis 13, Abraham kills these animals, and then what happens? He falls to sleep, and God himself passes through, saying, I'm binding my own life to bring about this. And in the new covenant, in Jeremiah 31, God makes that covenant. And so Jesus is the one whose blood is being shed not ours. And by him shedding his blood, he's bringing upon himself all the curse and requirements of the law. So that now, when the law looks at us, the law looks at us as people who have paid the debt. And we remember this. And we appropriate that reality to ourselves when we participate. When you receive the Lord's Supper, Understand that you are getting a picture of the fact that you were far off. You were dirty. You were guilty. But Jesus has come, instituting a new covenant, and you are acceptable to God because of him, and he has taken every curse upon himself so that you instead can walk in newness of life and have right relationship symbolized by table fellowship with God. And oh yeah, it's a meal that's open to us all. In the old covenant, they were so strict about who could and couldn't celebrate the Passover. But now, all of us, there's no distinctions between Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, skilled, skilled worker, hired hand. There's no distinctions. By faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus, we all are one people. And so together we come and participate and partake. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, remember, this is a sign and a seal that He is for you. And by saying, I'm not going to eat this again until it's new in the kingdom, you see there the promise of bringing everything to its fulfillment. He's not going to leave you hanging. He won't just string you along. He started you on a journey, and he's going to get you to the, to the conclusion. He is for you. He will make it happen. And along the way, he scheduled weekly appointments to meet with you. 
He may give you some surprise visits here and there. But these weekly appointments, he's made. They're on the calendar. There's 52 of them. Isn't that awesome? Don't miss them. They're great. But in the meantime, brothers and sisters, I want you to remember, whenever you wonder, is God on my side? I wish I had a sign. Remember that he has indeed given you a sign, the bread and the wine. Let's pray.